Welcome to Greyhounds Make Great Pets with Rory Garay, TJ Beater, and Kathy Garay. Each week, we talk about the connections between owners and their pets with an emphasis on topics that apply to greyhounds. If you want to hear more about your best friend, stay tuned. Now, here are your hosts. Happy National Pecan Pie Day. I don't make this stuff up, you know. Now put down those stuffies because it's 1 p.m. on the East Coast, 10 a.m. here in Hot Zona, and we all know what that means. Yes, it's dinner time in Zagreb. And it's time to welcome our fabulous listeners to another edition of Greyhounds Make Great Pets. We are going to have a fantastic show today. You know, on a scale of 1 to 10, I'd say we're going to have an 11. Our guest today is Dr. Linda L. Blythe, who is the co-author of Care of the Racing and Retired Greyhound, which is the health care and medical book you need to have if you have an adopted retired racing greyhound. Um, I had the pleasure of hearing Dr. Blythe speak a few weeks ago, and it was truly enlightening. I learned so much, so I'm very pleased to have uh, her joining us today. I'm sure our other hosts are too. And hey, before we bring on Dr. Blythe, why don't we bring on our other GMGP hosts, Roy Garay and TJ Beater. Howdy. Hi. Yeah, I, I think, TJ, you probably are, like myself as well, excited about this. Um, I think every one of us has used this book ourselves and or have given this book to our vets, and our vets have always been very excited to have the book and have used it as well. So to me, this is kind of exciting today. Absolutely. We use it constantly within our group. I have my own personal autographed copy from Dr. Blythe, and um, I have referred to it, I can't even begin to tell you how many times, being actively involved in adoption. Um, Our vets as well very much appreciate the book, and I think it's pretty much a go-to, and what we refer to as sort of the quote-unquote Greyhound Bible. Right. And just before we move along, I do believe you can buy the book at the Greyhound Hall of Fame and or order it through them and the NGA. So if you don't have it, I would encourage you to do it. I would as well. Yep. Well, I think with that, it's uh, time to bring on our guest. Welcome to Greyhounds Make Great Pets, Dr. Blythe. We're happy to have you with us today. Thank you very much. So... um, so how did did you enjoy your time there with the all the greyhound adopters in Abilene, uh, getting to see what crazy nuts we are? <laughs> oh, it was so much fun. I, I mean, I go to a lot of meetings, and a lot of them are yawning, kind of boring, kind of things. <laughs> but not this one. I mean, it was so neat to see the dedication of these people to their greyhounds, to see all the various greyhounds, including some three-legged ones. Um, I mean, with two hundred and forty-nine. Uh, participants and probably a hundred greyhounds. It was just a fun meeting. <laughs> it was just fun. <laughs> yeah, I know. We, I think everyone learned something there. Uh, even seasoned people like myself and TJ. We, I know, I learned something. TJ, I th- believe you learned things too as well. Absolutely. Um, I, I don't think that there's ever a point in time where anyone that's truly advocates of the breed stops learning or stops wanting to learn. Exactly, and which I kind of think maybe leads into the first question because I know when I started off in greyhound adoption um, in uh, well, I won't, yeah, nineteen ninety three, 
Imes and Science Diet were, and Purina were kind of the only, and Pedigree were the only foods out there. And I know I started off with Imes and I've stuck with that. But over the years, there seems to be always these new fads coming along. Um, I even remember having a friend who was a vegetarian and she was like, oh, I wish I had, there was a vegetarian diet for my dog. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> your, your dog's not a vegetarian. Why are you trying to force your beliefs on it? But I think one of the things... And I'd I would like to add, add to that, Rory, that I was actually a vegetarian myself, not a vegan, but a vegetarian for about 14 years. However, I never even considered the, the possibility of giving my dogs or my cats um, a vegetarian diet, just knowing how they naturally are in the wild. It just never crossed my mind yeah, it, it to do so. It, it, I, I'm sure with you, it, it boggles my mind that these people who say we're the voice of the animals, but yet they're forcing their own personal beliefs on the animals. Just I do it's kind of yummy thing to do. <laughs> you know, they want, they, want to, they want to feed them like family. So therefore, they should eat like family. And so it's real politically an up thing to do right now. Right. But it's wrong. It's just wrong. So, um, so uh, Dr. Blythe, what is the update on the, because um, I know it's a big thing right now, the grain-free diets and the FDA, including the list of dog foods ingest, ingested by dogs with a clinical disease? Well, there's really a very good report that anybody could go in on, if they have Internet access, go into FDA and DCM, dilated cardiomyopathy, DCM. And the latest report is June 27th, 2019, like two weeks ago. Wow. And this is such a valuable resource. It's a, the FDA investigation into potential link between certain diets and canine dilated cardiomyopathy, which is uh, a heart condition that then goes to congestive heart failure and then they die. So it is really important that anybody thinking about doing some of these grain-free diets or that have a high proportion of peas or lentils or legumes or potatoes, um, really look at this because uh, in it there's, um, and like I say, this is really new information. They got 560 animals that have been reported to them. They have details on all those animals. You can go in and look at all the, the 500 and uh, well, it's 520 reports, 560 affected animals because there's more in one household. So you can go in and look at all the breeds that have been affected, the proportion of who's the most affected, because goldens are really high because they got a real high social uh, level of activity, and so they communicate with themselves really well. There's one whippet and one greyhound in there that has uh, this condition. So it just... This gives anybody any of the information they would want, including all the dog foods that have been associated with this medical condition. And just for our listeners, because I, I know just when you brought that up, um, we kind of, there was just a little uh, sadness here in the, in the studio because we've, we've had some friends recently that have had greyhounds come down with a congestive heart failure. And I do just want to remind the listeners that right now, you know, prior to this study coming out, you didn't know this, we didn't know this, so don't go blaming yourself that you were giving them what you thought was a good, healthy diet. The pet store was telling you it was a good, healthy diet. Don't go really blaming yourself, but now that we have this information, yes, let's use it and move forward. 
Absolutely. Because the thing, and I would really like to chime in on that too. I, I, I would agree with that because I did have a dog pass away from that condition. At the time, I was feeding one of the quote unquote designer dog foods and thinking that I was doing the absolute best for my dogs, you know, spending a whole lot of money doing it because I had multiple greyhounds. And I like probably a lot of people now question if that's what happened with um, with my pilot. Yeah. It is really interesting in that usually heart disease is rarely reversible. But what makes this so exciting is if you can detect the clinical signs of coughing, exercise intolerance, reluctant to get up and go run, if you can get them get them to a cardiologist that can diagnose them, you can reverse it. Even if you think you have it, I would back away from any of these uh, grain-free diets or vegetarian diets and put them on an established um, diet of dog food that's known to be healthy. I myself use IMS. I have used it in my greyhounds all the time. It helps with the teeth. That is, a, too, that so. is wonderful information to have, to, to hear that. Um, I certainly hope there's a lot of greyhound listeners and other pet listeners out there that heard what you just said. Uh, Dr. Blythe, you had mentioned about, um, you know, this can roll into congestive heart failure. Are there signs that um, a pet owner can look for uh, with their dog? I mean, other than the shortness of breath. I mean, um, I know in people there's, you know, bloating and and things like that. Does it work the same way with your pets? Well, um, yeah, it's it's a progression. Um, Usually it'll start start off with coughing and if it gets into con- an, an exercise intolerance, and then it'll go into, the, when it gets into congestive heart failure, then the coughing gets really more severe because their lungs are filling up with fluid. And you, you know, you treat them with furosemide to try to get it out, but you, and things to strengthen the heart, but it's really too late because the heart walls are damaged. If you can catch this condition, it's called dilated cardiomyopathy. It does lead to uh, congestive heart failure, but other things, like I have a dog with um, Greyhound right now that is at the clinic. She's got a mitral valve insufficiency and high blood pressure. And so um, she is probably going to be in congestive heart failure in three to four months. And so we're trying to do things to stop it, but this is a different condition. Hers is a a flow problem and uh, this dilated cardiomyopathy is really a contactility problem. You get effect of the walls of the heart, but it can be reversed mm-hmm. if you catch it. And so that's get them off these diets. Even if you didn't have any clinical signs, I wouldn't risk having a dog, especially a large dog, on these diets. It's just, it's just too risky. It's not worth putting them through it right or taking the chance just because oh that's you know the thing to do um you in in your talk in abilene you also brought up um some issues with um cats uh putting cats on um a grain-free or um you know totally vegan kind of of diet can you expound on that a little more for our listeners because i i thought that was very interesting well cats have notoriously been known to develop um cardiomyopathy, genitive cardiomyopathy. 
and it's usually called well, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. They have a little bit of difference in their terminology. And it was because they didn't have enough uh, taurine in their diet. And in the and this was back when I was in vet school, which will age me, but in the you know, nineteen seventy, seventy five, Quentin Rogers at UC Davis was able to show, gee, they need this um taurine in their diet and so they incorporated it into, into the diet and then the disease in cats virtually disappeared. So now if you're feeding diets that have either not enough taurine or um, have an interaction between the ingredients that create a toxin that affects taurine, then you can get the disease in cats. So uh, you really should be feeding commercial cat food to cats, not any of these, um, what I call yuppie diets or designer <laughs> diets. Well, and I think that's big, is showing up in everything these days. I know um, we just bought a, a new bottle of uh, shampoo for our dogs for bath time. And the last bottle I bought it stated that, oh, you know, it has oatmeal and uh, for smoother skin and softer. And now the new bottle, same brand, now has coconut oil. So it's just whatever... Um, you know, designer thing is, is hot right now. Sadly, it's going to show up in our uh, pet foods and, uh, you know, extras for them. Mm-hmm. So I, I so everybody, okay. is the reason is driving it is everybody wants to treat their pet like their brother or sister or daughter or son. You know, you're, you're, you love your animals so much you want the very best for them. But sometimes what we think is the very best is actually harming them. Right. Well, Tan, TJ and, and, and I... And I do like that, yeah. that, that, that line of thinking because I do think that the anthropomorphism that we see is because we love our pets so much, but we, above all, we need to remember that the best thing that we can do is remember what they are and, and how <laughs> they have needs in, that's dietary and social and, and in everything. Their needs are different than ours. Love them, but respect them for what they are. Right. They yes, they exactly. are animals. I mean, we might dress them up, silly things like that, but, you know, <laughs> they still have four legs. And, ju- and just so you know, I do need a steak dinner every night. <laughs> That's my need. That's just stop. <laughs> um, okay, I just lost it. But again, would it... I know, too, when you go to the pet store, they always seem to be each brand. They'll have somebody there trying to talk you into buying their brand would it be better for people to instead of going to the pet store and talking to some yahoo that's trying to sell you this yuppie stuff and maybe actually have some discussion with your own veterinarian as to the needs of your your particular animal i think i trust a veterinarian before i would trust (laughs) somebody working in you know just a pet food store because uh they don't have the nutritional training that a veterinarian does and I don't know how many of them know about this disease. I think in the veterinary world, there's been uh, enough publications coming out. Uh, UC Davis has a really good website. On they did a study on some golden retrievers, and that were ended up being taurine deficient, and were on these various diets. And that web page is a really good resource to see one particular breed. Um, so. Veterinarians are mostly now becoming very aware of this and would put it on their list of differentials. The thing is, is that 
you could go and spend a lot of money, like I just spent $2,000 on my Greyhound, thinking, well, is this possibly it, or is it really the mitral valve? What's the mitral valve? But they had to do about $2,000 worth of work to figure that out with the Doppler and, and all of that, looking at blood flow. So if I were an ordinary consumer, I think, gee, if I started seeing these signs and I was feeding these kind of diets, the key to all of this is switch to a, a, an established diet. You know, one made by, I don't care, IMS, I do IMS, Purina, you know, the real ones, and then don't buy the grain-free. Every, almost every one of these, Purina has one, Rachel Ray has one. You can go to the grocery store, and I was taking pictures in the grocery store. Everyone has a grain-free because it's popular, but but don't do it. All right. And it, it'll, it'll fat out. Uh, you know, something I was thinking over the last couple of weeks, uh, especially after seeing you in Abilene at the Heart of America event, we... Many of us, like TJ, myself, we've we've been to the farms, we've been to the kennels, we've seen the feed. You know that they'll be adding in um, some kibble with the uh, the meat and vegetables and all that. And these dogs then performed at a top level. And I'm kind of thinking, it's like, why was it once they got into adoption that Purina and all that was considered crap, and we should start looking at these other things because they they need the best. They were probably already getting the best. Yeah, because if you want an athlete to perform at their best, you know, you're going to give them the best nutrition possible. And that's been tested, you know, over many, many years of performance of greyhounds, especially, you know, they have to perform to make their owners money in a racing kennel. So for the most part, their nutrition is better than what most, you know, poor people get. <laughs> I mean, exactly. Boy, I can second that. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, you, you, if you really think back, I just remember being told, "Oh, we can't feed them this crap stuff because they're, you know, we, they they need this and this." It's like, but they were already performing at a top level, and they were being fed this, and they kept, they were able to continue performing at that level. That would tell me they were already on a good diet. Yeah, the only downside of that diet that most kennels were on is that they fed 4D meat, you know, diseased, dying, disabled, or dead. Um, and so that meat, depending on when it was put into dog food, they usually were frozen. And so if you thawed it out and let it sit around, there were chances some of them had some pretty nasty bacteria like salmonella in it. And then you could cause a, a greyhound or even a whole kennel to blow out with diarrhea. <laughs> and so 4D meat, if you handle it right, is still good meat, but you you got a thought and then feed it right away. If it smells bad, throw it away. Right, and I, I think most of the kennel operators today, they do know about that. And I know when Tucson Greyhound Park was open, that was always one of the things I observed when I went down there was how they were handling the 4D meat and then how it was being served. And, you know, was it just sitting around, especially out here in Arizona, like yesterday was 114. You don't want it sitting around for Mm -mm. Five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and it'll thaw out quickly. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the same thing, it's like if you smell meat you have in the refrigerator and you pull it out and you unwrap it and everything, if it's turning colors and it smells bad, you're not going to use it. Nope. So the same type of mentality should be for the, the meat that the, the greyhounds eat. And, again, people need to sort of remember or they shouldn't sort of, they should remember that 
animals in the wild, yes, they do eat the carcasses of, of other animals and things like that. It, their, their systems, uh, that's a long way of saying, their systems are built far differently than ours in what they, how they break it down, how they process things, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, if it looks bad, smells bad, it's probably bad. Um, <laughs> yeah, and better and not don't to take a it. chance. And, and that's Diarrhea why, is no fun to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why um, some muzzles have what they call poop guards for those of us with greyhounds who have a kind of nasty habit. Yeah, but see, I know with what TJ was just saying, I always know when I'm at home and one of the dogs has brought in one of these carcasses that's been out <laughs> in the yard because I just hear this screaming. And it's not one of the dogs screaming, it's... I like when they bring me presents, but, you know, pigeons without heads is not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> or pigeon jerky, lizard jerky. Oh, lizards, they just suck right down. Yeah. It's not a problem. <laughs> um, Dr. Blythe, do you, and, I mean, you've, you've been doing what you have been doing for a few years now, more than, like, six. Um, have you seen... A difference in what uh, greyhounds get or their illnesses or do you feel that maybe they you know 30 40 years ago greyhounds or any breed of dog may have been susceptible to these things but because uh, medical strides are so different in, in veterinary care that we now know what is wrong with our pets rather than just guessing oh I I think the latter is really true. I mean, people who own greyhounds, from everything I've observed, are usually um, very intense about taking care of these dogs. And so anything that is wrong, they go to a veterinarian and they look for a veterinarian that knows about greyhounds. And so um, a lot of them have bought the book and then they buy another book for their veterinarian because <laughs> greyhounds are different. In fact, it, it was really interesting having my own dog in the hospital right now. She's 13 and a half. Um, they told me, oh, she's got high blood pressure. She's got this, she's got that. So I, I started doing some searching about high blood pressure in dogs. There's some really good information out now about um, studies about clinical pathology on greyhounds and other sighthounds. Um, and people think, oh, if it's a sighthound, all their all blood work is different, and all sighthounds are different than regular dogs. Well, it's true that they are different than regular dogs, but greyhounds are unique, and only whippets are close to them. So, I'm glad uh, you said that. I really am. My, my own just, veterinarian said the same thing. Uh, he's been doing a whole lot of research about greyhounds in his years of experience, and he said, I'm not even fully convinced these are really dogs. And that was a bit tongue-in-cheek, but it just is how different the greyhounds really are. Yes, they are. There was uh, another paper that came out. It's called Hemological and Biochemical Variations Among Eight Sighthound Breeds. So they're just going to see, uh, are they all the same? And, and no, they were not. You have to know greyhound blood values. Probably the whippets would fall into that, but you can't use a Saluki or an mm. Afghan or any of those other ones and say, oh, the greyhounds are this, so therefore my dogs should be this too because they're different. And then greyhounds have, this is the other one because my own dog was affected with it. They said, oh, she's got such high blood pressure. And uh, so they're giving her all kinds of blood pressure me medicines. And so I went and um, uh, pulled this paper. Greyhounds naturally have higher blood pressure than other dogs. So it just... 
I didn't know that, and this is in a recent paper, and so I'm, I'm learning as we go along, too. This was one in 2017 in the Journal of Veterinary Internal Medicine. So how greyhounds have higher blood pressure, uh, systolic, than other regular breeds of dogs. I just find that really interesting. And do you think, Dr. Blythe, do you think that that's because of how they're anatomically built for speed, uh, you know, where they have the larger hearts and how much blood is pumped through their hearts as they're racing? Do you think that's sort of all just tied in together with the quote-unquote high blood pressure maybe? You know, it's a good question. They looked at what usually regulates blood pressure is what they call the renin-aldosterone angiotensin system. And they looked at that in greyhounds versus non-greyhounds, and it was the same. There was nothing different. So it isn't that being driven. It is just something so unique to the greyhound that it's wow. like greyhounds mm-hmm. have packed cell volumes really high. And so if a veterinarian sees, oh, they got a 58% packed cell volume, you go, oh, my gosh, it's dehydrated. No, it's not. It's a normal greyhound. Or you take a dog <laughs> in... And I did this with one of my younger greyhounds. Uh, I took it in, and uh, they radiographed the chest. Oh, my God, the heart is so large. must have heart disease. So I took it to a heart specialist. $550 later, oh, it's a greyhound heart. So you just have to, I mean, the size of the heart. So am I surprised that this one paper talks about the mean uh, greyhound blood pressure the mean is 150, but it goes up to about 180. These are at rest, and the mean in regular dogs is uh, something like 130 and only goes up to about 150. So you can get veterinarians looking at these parameters and get really excited and putting all this medication. I've had two weeks of medication on my Greyhound, and that blood pressure hasn't changed one iota. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to stop you right here, Dr. Blythe, because we're going to have to take our, our break and, and, and let everybody out for a turnout. So we will be right back after our commercial break with more Greyhounds Make Great Pets with Dr. Blythe. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Join Chris Epting every week for the moment. Chris talks to some of the most amazing people you'll ever meet, including authors, artists, and athletes. And that's just the A-list. These celebrities and public figures have interesting stories that all showcase the moments that their lives took a certain dramatic turn, changing them forever and shaping them to be the person that they were meant to be. Listen for The Moment with Chris Epting, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Looking for the best show about horse racing and handicapping? Want to play the ponies? (laughs) 
Join us every week for Winning Ponies with John Engelhart, racing's regular guy, where you'll go inside and behind the scenes with the top jockeys, trainers, agents, and handicappers in the world of horse racing. This show is the perfect complement to the Winning Ponies handicapping website. Listen for top plays for the weekend and the spot play of the week and win prizes just for calling in. Winning Ponies with John Engelhart is live Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Sports Network. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. The GPA, that's Greyhound Pets of America. If you would like information on how you can adopt an ex-racing Greyhound, call 800-366-1472. These dogs are fit, healthy, happy, playful pets, good with children, and oh, do they love lots of hugs. Adopt a cool Greyhound today. Call 800-366-1472. You are listening to Greyhounds Make Great Pets with Rory, TJ, and Kathy. To find out more about the show and what we do, please send an email to gmgp3 at yahoo.com. That's gmgp3 at yahoo.com. Now, back to Greyhounds Make Great Pets. Welcome back, and you're listening to Greyhounds Make Great Pets on Voice America. We'll be returning to our conversation with... Dr. Linda Blythe about greyhound care and health. Uh, And for those of you who don't know yet, she is the co-author of Care of the Racing and Retired Greyhound. And you better have this book on your shelf. Uh, Do you happen to have a question for Dr. Blythe? Well, you can call us at 866-472-5787 or 5788. However, if you're listening to this show on demand, don't call because we're not here. Uh, so, Dr. Blythe, thank you again for joining us. And we've got all mm-hmm. kinds of medical questions that I know greyhound owners always like to ask because we need to know. And oh, am okay. I, I, I'm up. Okay, yeah, I'm well, getting. I'll let you go. I'm getting the look here. Um, w- let's talk about osteosarcoma. Um, I understand there's a new vaccine that has been designed to prolong the life expectancy of dogs with this, and you're the one that can tell us more. Uh, it's still an experimental station. That is right. It's a uh, recombinant listeria vaccine, and. It has been driven by the fact that children with osteosarcoma, once they get metastasized to the lungs, if they don't catch it early enough, they have real trouble um, 
saving these people with these lung lesions. And so they're using the greyhound, well, dogs, dogs, let's put it, dogs as a model. And so they've developed this Listeria vaccine that attacks a receptor in dogs that the receptor itself, when you get cancer like osteosarcoma, it blocks the ability of the immune system to suppress it or stop it. So it gives the cancer just a free reign to metastasize and then kill the animal. So this new vaccine goes after that receptor and blocks it. And so the cool thing about that is if you still, if you get a dog with osteosarcoma, you still probably have to amputate it because it's so painful. And you still have to have chemotherapy. And they suggest two to three doses of carboplatin. But after that, most dogs were dead within 100 days, 50 to 70. It varies. And what they die from is that the time you see the lameness, it's already metastasized the cancer cells to the lungs. So this new vaccine, they, this, it's a multicentric study. But um, Pennsylvania released a report on um, 18 cases, and all of them were identical. They had early diagnosis, amputation, chemotherapy, and no evidence of metastasize in the lung. And that's not uncommon to not see the metastasize until after the amputations already happened. And then they used five additional cases that did have lung lesions, so they vaccinated all these 23 dogs. They, they measured two ways of looking at it. How long was the dog disease-free, and how long did the log live? So instead of dying within 100 days, they were disease-free for 615 days, and they survived for 956 days. I mean, that is just amazing. Definitely. Um, so in this paper that came out, they looked at dogs that were vaccinated versus the standard care, the, the amputation, the chemotherapy. And year one, 78% of the vaccinated dogs were still alive, and only 35% of the regular um, amputation chemo were alive. Year two, 67% of the vaccinated dogs were still alive, and 10 to 15% of the standard treatment were alive. Year three, 50% of the vaccinated dogs were still alive, and none of the standard treatment were alive. Wow. So it, wow. that, that's, that's an amazing increase in survival. I mean, it's almost miraculous that this vaccine could do this. Um, and so even with the dogs, I told you they had five dogs that had lung lesions already. Those five dogs lived 738 days. So even though they had lung lesions already there, this vaccine was able to modify those metastases and subdue them and, and, and uh, make them so that they didn't kill the dog. That's amazing. That's just a, that's amazing because um, well, I have been fortunate in that out of the 16 greyhounds that I've adopted and one I just recently adopted, I've only had one pass away with osteosarcoma. But it's the same thing. It progressed to the lungs, and, and that's what is the, or was the death knell so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, was once it got into the lungs. Um, and to, to hear something like that, and I mean, I can't think of a single greyhound owner that, especially when they get up into the to the 
seven to, to ten year and older range, as soon as you see one one small limp, even if it's a brief one, that's the first thing that, that runs through your mind. Yep. So Absolutely. this would be a true a true miracle in in my eyes um, to see this actually be something that can be beaten, so to speak, in terms of longevity and, and quality of life for the greyhounds. That would just be amazing. Right. Um, Dr. Blythe, you mentioned, it was was this research, is this being done out of, I think, the University of uh, Pittsburgh or, or in the Pennsylvania? This was Pennsylvania Veterinary School. Okay. That released this uh, data. And um, they are part of, a, like I say, multicentric um, study. And uh, so the oncologist I talked to here at Oregon State, where I'm at, they said if it holds true, this will be really be amazing. But there's many more dogs and many more studies that are feeding into this. And so they were really excited that this preliminary study on, you know, 18 dogs um, were, uh, were so, so favorable. I mean, wow. so far beyond anything we've ever seen before. Wow. There's another study that was done on... Um, dogs that had the lung lesions where they went in, they did the amputation, they did the chemo, and they went in and surgically removed out the lung cancer nodules. And amazingly enough, those dogs lived longer too. Huh? Wow. <laughs> when they actually took out the nodules. Now that, that to me wow. is another surgery, another expense. So this vaccine is, is if it ends up doing what the... 18 dogs did, it, it'll just be amazing. I don't know when it'll be ready, though, right. for well, dissemination. Well, and I know um, good friends of the show and of Greyhound Pets of America, uh, Mark and Lisa, I, I know they had a Greyhound that they had some, and I think it may have been part of this study, um, and I know they I had... I believe it was. Yeah, uh, they, Tucker was a, a part of that study. And they had some really good success, and I just remember both TJ and I hearing the stories from uh, Lisa, and it, it was really... Heartwarming, and to know that it was making a difference, and that maybe a few years down the road, this will be awesome. Yeah, we won't we won't panic every time we see a limp, and we'll go, oh look, it was just a rock in their paw, <laughs> or a corn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, or corn, or a corn. And you know what? Speaking of corns, another big concern with a lot of greyhound owners is corns and and the problems and and what's happening and. You know, Dr. Blythe, I, I bet you have some information, some new stuff on, on corns, <laughs> don't you? <laughs> I, I wish I did. Um, <laughs> what I do have is that there is a group in uh, England, England and Norway, but mainly England, and he um, has written several articles. He's looked at them. He's, there's a pathologist and as well as a veterinarian that does a lot of... Um, uh, looking at these lesions histologically and trying to figure out, you know, everybody says what causes them. And for a while, even when we wrote Care of the Racing Greyhound, you know, they said, oh, they found uh, PCR, found, you know, a virus in them. But now they're pretty much ruling that out with uh, more additional information. And so this person, his name is Gillard, and he he has kind of put forth the evidence of it isn't a foreign body. It isn't, um, what is the other thing that there's always, it isn't a virus. It isn't an infection. It's really mechanical injury to the, the, the pad. 
Hmm. And I don't know, have you guys ever had a corn? I've had one on my little toe. I've not. I've not, you know, no. Well, over the shoes rub, and then you get this hard little thing, no, and so then I've you go buy it. Either. You go buy this stuff, and you drop it on, drop it on until it kills enough of the corn, and then you lift it off. Now, that doesn't work so good in greyhounds. It works in people, because people get basically corns. And for the greyhounds, it's, it's harder if you believe that the mechanical uh, pressures on those pads are the cause of it, and this is the most current thinking that that's what's causing it, then how are you going to avoid it? Corns only occur in greyhounds, sighthounds. Which is that was going to be my next question, and, and, and just if it were, it was a hair-footed, so to speak, problem, since the greyhounds do have what they call the the hair oh. feet, H-A-R-E, not H-A-I-R. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It may be that in Giller's article, he shows that the, the underneath the skin, there's a dermis and then there's the epidermis and then there's a little fat pad. And the pathologist and he work together saying that greyhounds have the smallest fat pad between the, the skin of the pad and the underlying deep digital flexor tendon and then the underlying bone. And so that that's what makes the greyhounds most susceptible to mechanical injury that results in these corns. And so in other words, I think another thing that is unique to the greyhounds. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. And it must be because maybe that pad, it, that little fat pad isn't as big as it is in other dogs. Swam, who's a guy out of veterinarian skin specialist out of Auburn, he tried injecting some silicone in to where that fat pad should be and got some beneficial results but didn't know how long they would last. Hmm. You know, it's like putting a, a, a little falsy fat pad into the, paw, into the pad. So uh, one of the best talks I ever heard was John D., who's a very famous greyhound surgeon out of Florida, he got up and talked about corns one day, and he says, these are the remedies. And he had about 20 different remedies on the board. <laughs> and he says, the reason there's 20 is because none of them work perfectly. <laughs> is, there one that, is there one that works sort of better than the rest? I mean, um, a lot of people just, you know, file them down or hull them or, or, you know, some are kind of deep and you have to take them into your vet. I mean, is there, is there right. something that is, or is it just dependent on the dog and the severity of the corn? Well, I think the key is if a dog even starts limping, people don't realize that corns can cause that much pain. And so look at it and then surgically remove it. 50% of them little under 50% will come back. I mean, that's not bad. There's nothing else that will give you that kind of success rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've got at least 50%, little under 50% chance of successfully getting rid of it. Okay, But the earlier, the better. Because the more you don't disrupt the skin, you could, you could just core out the corn, then the greater the chance that the configuration of the paw or the pad will be normal enough to withstand the pressure of walking. It's usually on uh, the front legs, 90%, and digits three and four, the two weight-bearing digits. Hmm. Do the, so, oh, early ahead. detection. I mean, 
I can't ever say if dog starts limping, don't jump to osteosarcoma. Look for a corn, and the best way to do it is to clean it and then put a little bit of water on it, and then just see if you just see this pinpoint of kind of yellowish to brownish circular corn, and then get it out early so you don't disrupt the rest of the tissue as bad. Okay, um, I'm just. I do want to get. Um, there's there's one more question. Uh, from one of our co-hosts that uh, I'd like to bring up before our time is up. Uh, TJ, I'm tossing this over to you. Okay. Um, Dr. Blythe, um, I was a longtime resident of Florida, and um, in, in some recent, over the last couple of years, uh, there has been, um, there's a lot of disinformation that's being circulated, not only in Florida, but, but it was highlighted there a lot with the, the situation that went on there. And there was a legislator that got up in front of his peers and plainly stated that female greyhounds were transitioning to male greyhounds due to birth control. And being a, in the adoption community, I, I honestly was astounded that a, a man would get up and say that. Um, particularly because out of those 4,000-plus that I have assisted in placing, I've never once had an adopter come in and tell me that their beloved Betty all of a sudden one morning woke up as Brawny Bubba. (laughs) So can you you give us a little bit of insight into that, please? Um, Greyhounds in racing uh, kennels do get testosterone. Testosterone is an anabolic steroid. And uh, they do it to keep them out of heat. And so um, how would that affect a female? Well, I think the worst it could do is at the clitoris, maybe make a little bit of hypertrophy enlargement. But that, so you might see that, but you sure won't see any full-grown penis <laughs> coming out underneath the tail. Now, could, could so, you just, yeah, and you're firm about that, right? <laughs> it, it cannot happen. <laughs> It cannot happen. It, it can cause, you know, the clitoris has got the outer layer and then a little, the inner layer. Mm-hmm. That might get a little bit enlarged, right. but it's sure not going to turn into a penis. <laughs> well, and they, they did the same thing in Tucson. They were saying that. So, and I remember I spent the weekend, I went down there and checked out all the girls, lifted up their tails, didn't see a single one of them packing. And now they also like to keep making the claim that, well, it is a steroid and that these dogs are on steroids, and the public starts thinking, oh, my God, these, these dogs are on steroids. It's got to be impacting their, the races. Is, is this really a steroid that's going to make them bulk up and be better runners? Or Boy, that's a good question. Um, could a, you know, in Australia, they're not allowed to use testosterone. And so, um, or any androgen. And yet the females still run with the males. You know, could a, a female that say spayed or neutered, you know, they never do that because it could be a, a good breeding dog. But if you bred one, could she keep up with the male of, you know, say grade A? And I don't know that I can answer that question hmm. because it will cause them to be stronger, more muscular. I don't know that uh, any really good studies have been shown to do that but the minute you know they get a a shot maybe uh, once every two weeks in a kennel but when you stop it they're going to come into heat and then they're going to reverse and so and it's um, a low dose that they get right and they do get a low dose 
just enough to keep them out of season. They're trying to, Australia's trying to develop a vaccine to keep them out of season. Because huh. they don't... And that was know, one of the things that I wanted to, to ask you, was, was given the fact that it was such a low dose, um, and, and with it being something that reverses immediately, if, if it was something that would could ever truly make a, a major difference, uh, it seems to me like there's a lot of hyperbole out there that they're being just pumped full of steroids and working out I'm huge I kind of wanted you to clarify that as to, to the dosages that they get and, and things of that nature it's kind of like females with um, birth control pills um, you know there's a certain amount of hormones in that but mm-hmm. I don't think Remember any woman that I steroids. know of there's two kinds of steroids yes, exactly. there's cortical steroids mm-hmm. which you give to you reduce inflammation which are almost contraindicated in greyhounds because they're so sensitive to them, and you can put them right into a Cushing's disease syndrome. Okay? Mm-hmm. So you really don't want to use corticosteroids. What's an example? Dexamethasone, uh, um, prednisone, prednisolone. Those are corticosteroids. These steroids you're talking about, testosterone is an androgen, um, mm-hmm. and, and they work a little bit different. They're used to build up the body. In fact, if you've got a, a, a dog that's really kind of doing poor, you will give them an androgen to put them into a positive protein balance. But you're sure not going to give them a high enough dose to turn a female into a male. <laughs> in fact, they use, right. they use um, estrogen in male dogs to uh, counteract a hypertrophy of the prostate which is caused by excessive testosterone. So um, that's been reported in canine uh, um, prostate condition. So in other words, it's, a, it's sort of a, a balancing act. If, estrogen. It's used, if it's used properly, it's more like a balancing act. Right. right. But no penis. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, sure all of the... Um, Greyhound doctors out there will be much relieved to hear that, although uh, the force with which they came back uh, with the responses pretty much uh, assured me that that will probably be uh, a comment that that particular legislator will have to live with for the rest of his life. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm relieved because I was nervous that if we ever got Greyhound Racing back here in Arizona that we were going to have to hire, along with the people out catching the pee, we were going to have to hire an official pecker checker. <laughs> You've That's just been waiting to say that, haven't you? <laughs> no, right. but it, if you hear this all the time. You know, like I said, Tanya heard this in Florida. So now the next time, folks, whenever you hear this or somebody writes about it on the Internet, direct them to this show. Dr. Blythe puts them straight. Huh. I'm sorry to the folks in Massachusetts that like using this, but you guys lied. You know who'd be who'd be a really good one to ask this question of who sees more greyhounds than probably any of us combined is the people down in Melbourne, Florida that do all those neutering of all those dogs. You know who I'm talking about? Um, yeah, well, in Melbourne, I don't think they're really doing anything down there right now. Um, I think actually that track is closed or getting okay. ready to close, and I know they've not been moving many dogs out of that area in a long time. Well, they did a lot of in, dogs in, in the Tampa Bay area. Our veterinarians can pretty much set the record straight on that as well because we do a lot um, of the, the vetting, of course, for the, the Derby Lane dogs. 
Um, and I'm pretty pretty sure that they can set the record straight on that one as well. So yeah, Greyhound Savvy Vet that 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 deal with these uh, dogs for a long time can pretty much set the record straight on that. Well, if, they're, if, if right. you check your sources. And I would think that at this point, with Greyhound Racing being in existence for so many years, if there were any cases. I would have to think someone's going to document it somewhere because it would be a pretty unique situation. Mm-hmm. There'd be pictures. There's another thing to ask these yeah. these activists when that make these claims. Where's the proof? You can ima- imagine if somebody has spayed, say, 500 greyhounds to prepare them for adoption. When you roll them over and you're neutering them, you know, doing a spay, you would see if there's any penis production well if and you're a good vet i would hope you know <laughs> <laughs> well <laughs> well uh, i guess the male in the room has to compose himself right now um well thank you for putting that myth to to rest to bed and um hopefully politicians in florida might pay attention one day politicians all over need to wake up yeah that's true stop listening to the activists start listening to the experts the people who know right that's a good one rory activists know experts yes that's that's who you need to listen to and that's that's in every state and i can't thank dr blythe Blythe enough for coming on and, and continuing sort of what we were doing in abilene and i hope we can have some more conversations with her uh, in the future. Well, I definitely think we will. I think so, too. Um, <laughs> well, I, I, I see our, our time clock is down to a minute, and uh, I'd like to thank you, Dr. Blythe, for joining us. It has been a pleasure, and as always, learn stuff and hope our listeners have learned a lot of stuff, too. We'd like to thank our... I'm sorry? No, keep going. Oh, okay. We'd like, well, like to thank my co-hosts. Um, and I'd like to thank our producer, Tacey, our engineer, Aaron. And Next uh, week, we're going to oh, have Dr. Rory. Maury Craig here on how we will, or how he fixes the race, not fixing the race for people to make more money, but to fix the race to make sure people aren't doing things illegally and make sure it's a proper race. He, he's a really good one, and he was another one that was there in Abilene. And I think for all of you that have heard the BS over the years from these activists, you're going to learn something about cocaine next week. So again, I would like to thank uh, Linda for joining us today. Uh, our engineer, Aaron, our producer, Tacey. It's been a great week of some wonderful learning today. And I want to thank the two ladies here on the show with me, Kathy and TJ. Everyone, I want to thank our listeners all across the world. Thank you. And remember, hug the hounds of the world. Thank you for listening this week to Greyhounds Make Great Pets. Please join your hosts, Rory Goray, TJ Beter, and Kathy Goray for another edition of our program next Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a wonderful week.